Good morning, Forks. We don't know each other. I'm Pastor Paul. So glad you're here. Looking around, see some of you haven't seen for quite a while. It's great, great to have you back. If you're still worshiping online with us, super glad you're tuning in as well. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38 as we continue our walk through the book of Genesis. This is sort of a, a journey within a journey or a story within a story. This is focusing on the life of Joseph. God meant good. And you're going to notice this morning we don't have readers, and that's because our passage, um, shall we say, is full of adult, mature themes. So while nothing compared to, say, Song of Songs or Ezekiel, um, I didn't want it to be too awkward for one of you to have to to read this, but I, I am going to read it. And as I do, let me take this opportunity just to say a few things about passages like this. You know, it's a weird Christian universe that we live in where we have no problem watching Netflix in our homes where there's vile language and violence and all sorts of other things, but we do have a problem reading portions of God's Word in church. And let me just kind of push on that just for a minute. When, you know, when the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, for all Scripture, and when he's speaking about Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. He says all, like underline all Scripture is God breathed, means this passage was breathed out by God, is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. And so to me, that's one of the things that makes the word of God so compelling. It is so real. You know, in other religious traditions, oftentimes um, people try to round off the rough edges of their most prominent characters. And in the Bible, it's exactly the opposite, right? You have real people with real problems who need a real God to give them real grace. And we are certainly going to find that this morning in the story of Judah and Tamar. So Genesis 38, I'm going to start at verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to dive in together. Now, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of her brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, and he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, 
She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was Zerah. Let's pray. Lord, we're just overwhelmed with the enormity of the brokenness in this chapter and of the sin and of the the legacy of dysfunction that's been passed down but yet lord if you give us eyes to see we can see your amazing grace we can see the gospel here we can see how your hand is sovereignly orchestrating all these things to preserve your goodwill your sovereign line, the Messiah, the promise. And we pray, Father, that we will be able to trace that own thread into our own lives. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. I know a lot of you uh, football fans are holding your breath to find out if indeed the season really is going to happen or not. But of course, this is not the first time that fans have been disappointed by things outside of the game beyond their control there was a very famous game the year before i was born the oakland raiders were playing the new york jets 1968 a regular season game that infamously um, came to be called the heidi bowl and the heidi bowl is it went like this so this was a, a back and forth game these are fierce bitter divisional afc rivals and one team goes ahead another team goes ahead and it's back and forth and there's a big comeback and with about three minutes in the game 
um, it's coming down to the last drive when inexplicably at 8 p.m. sharp, the CBS television executives made the fateful decision to switch over from the game to the movie Heidi. And it's a, it was an infamous time. This was pre-social media, of course, but the deluge of calls and outrage and the world was just exploding at the moment of highest tension in this game. And of course, they, they, they compounded their error by right in the middle of the game, flashing the final score on the screen. As you can imagine, that did not turn out the way they thought. Can you imagine just the letdown? If you, some of you come to me after the second, first service and said, I, I watched that game. And, and indeed, I'm sure you did. Not what you're expecting. And in a lot of ways, that's what this chapter can initially seem like. The Heidi Bowl, right? See, we're cutting away after chapter 37 as seemingly the greatest moment of tension. 17-year-old Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers who've covered it up and pretended like he's been murdered. He's been carted out to Egypt. And we are wondering what in the world is going to happen to this young man. And when, when, when we're, just, we're just hoping and praying, right? He pulls a Russell Crowe in Gladiator, right? He, just, he gets this, this revenge streak in his heart and he's saving up for the day. He's going to come back with a vengeance against his brothers. But instead... Moses takes us back to 38. It's, calm, it's almost kind of like, now back at the Ponderosa, okay, Jacob's family soap opera continues. And, but here, here, I want to press in for a little bit here because I think this story is actually done this way to build the suspense. And here's, here's why I'm saying that. When the Israelites are reading this story for the first time 400 years later, remember they're wandering in the wilderness and Moses tells them this story by this time, it's the tribe of Judah that's prominent. By this time, it's clear that Judah became the chief and the head and the heir of his brothers. But yet, the last time we see Judah, he's, he's a slaver. He's selling his brother into slavery. And, and the Israelites are, are wondering, how did this happen? How did, we get, how did this man get from here to here? And as we're going to see as we walk through the rest of Genesis, in fact, Judah plays a crucial role in the story of Joseph. He plays someone who God calls for that time and that place to step into that gap to be used in a powerful way. And we'll see how that comes out here in a few weeks. But first, something has to happen in Judah's soul. Something has to happen in his heart. And so three points for us this morning, and here they are. Number one, Judah's troubles. Number two, Judah's transformation. And finally, number three, Judah's triumph. And that's going to be in quotation marks, as we shall see. All right, let's go look at the first verse there. It says, at that time... And of course, this is immediately after the brothers have pulled one over on their father and sent Joseph down to Egypt as a slave. And it says, at that time, and we don't know what Judah's psychological state is at this point. Remember, whose idea was it to sell Joseph as a slave? Judah, right? And we don't know if this is like he's just trying to suppress all of this. He has to get away. But when it says it tur- he turns aside from his brothers, what that literally means is that he left home. 
He went away from his family. He went away from the covenant family, and he did the very thing that God told Jacob and his descendants not to do. He said, don't intermarry. Don't wander among the Canaanites. Don't worship their gods. Don't, don't assimilate your life into theirs. And this is going to be a resounding theme throughout the course of the history of Israel, right? That, that this, this kind of idolatry plagued them and it watered down their relationship with God and got them sent to Babylon. And here Judah is taking the lead. And it says here, and it's kind of hard to see in the, in the English, but literally when it said that Judah saw this Canaanite woman, it literally says he saw, he took, and he possessed. Judah, at this, by this point, is a, is a middle-aged, callous, hardened, sort of destitute man. And it says that he had three sons by this Canaanite woman, but not only did Judah intermarry with a Canaanite woman himself, but he had his oldest son intermarry with a Canaanite woman, and her name, of course, was Tamar. And here we see that, first of all, Er, his oldest son, and that that could just, Er, Er, that could just be a whole sermon in itself. We could have fun with that, right? He married Tamar, and it doesn't say what what happened, but it says that he was wicked and that God put him to death. So second son married the Tamar, and we're going to talk about him in a second, Onan, and he was also wicked and God put him to death. Now, before we go further in this story, I want to make two points, two observations. These are not the main points of the text, but I think they're, they're super relevant for us. And the first point of this, if it offends your modern sensibilities that it says here that God kills people, I need you to understand something. We need to understand, thing, understand something. God having the prerogative to deal with sin how he sees fit, that's not just an Old Testament thing. That's a Bible thing. We see that in Ananias and Sapphira. We see it through in 1 Corinthians. We see it in the book of Revelation. And this is important for us to know because we definitely live in a day and age where we hear things, people say things like, well, Pastor Paul, I could never worship a God like that. Like fill in the blank. For a God, I, 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 just, I can't tolerate that. I can't, that doesn't, that doesn't fit my conception of what God should be. And we need to be reminded We are called as God's people to worship God and God alone. And there is only one authoritative, absolute standard of truth for who God is, and that is his holy word. Otherwise, we are worshiping a God as a figment of our imagination. We are worshiping a God of our own construction. And that's going to challenge, that challenges, by the way, every era, every culture, There's going to be parts of God's word that are more offensive and hard for a particular culture than others. And so it's always been this way. And it's, again, just a reminder for folks, let God be God. Just let God be God. And he does not need you to apologize for him. He does not need you to sand down the edges of his word to make it more palpable for a culture that's never going to receive it anyway, apart from the Holy Spirit. So that's observation number one. Observation number two just relates to dating and marriage. Now, this, this is really directed towards those who are not married, who are thinking about marriage, or um, could possibly be married in the future, or you're dating someone, maybe seriously. One of the most important parts of 
of having a fruitful, flourishing marriage, biblically speaking, is wise assessment. Okay? And by that I mean choosing the right kind of person. And I don't mean like where they're from or what their, what their race is or are they rich or poor. I don't mean any of that. I'm talking about a spiritual assessment. I'm talking about the call that Paul makes to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You see, when you, when you put two people together and one's allegiance is to do what God says by the authority of Jesus Christ in his word and another whose authority is not that, no amount of therapy or counseling is going to fix that apart from the gospel. And it's, it's, it's a call, um, young people, to be the kind of Christ-centered person that you want to marry. It's to, it's to date um, with a purpose and with a mission. It doesn't mean that you're going to marry every person you date or should marry every person you date, but you should not be dating someone that you don't know or doesn't possess the kinds of characteristics that would make them a Christ-honoring spouse. And so those are just two freebies. You didn't even pay to come to hear those, right? Those are just two freebies from the text. But back to the story. Tamar's first husband dies, heir, and following later Old Testament Leveret law, and remember Moses had prescribed for this in Deuteronomy, that, and it was actually an ancient Near East culture, that if the, if the oldest son died, okay, without propagating an heir, without having a son, it would fall to the next son in line to marry the widow in order to propagate the family heir and um, family line. This was a way to give children. And this was really important in that culture because if you were a widow and your husband died and you had no heir, you had no son, you were destitute. There was nowhere to go. There was no moving to the city and getting an apartment and, you know, having a job on the side. There was none of that. You were in an incredibly vulnerable place. And so this was actually an act of love. And it was something that men in that culture did to serve the women um, that they were called to care for. Well, here, Onan, the second second oldest, gets the call. But as we see... Uh, to put it in a delicate way, he thwarts the conception process, right? And it tells us why he does this, why he refuses to have a, have a child by, with, with Tamar. You see, as the second in command, if there is no heir, if the oldest son dies, who receives the inheritance in full? He does. But if he has a son it really belongs to Tamar, and the inheritance goes through him, and it, it dilutes his position. It dilutes his, his inheritance. And so he acts incredibly wickedly by refusing to give Tamar a child. So God puts him to death. And as you can see, if you're a son of, what does that third son have to be thinking right now, right? Um, not a, if, you know, if this was a fraternity, it would be a very, very small pledge class, okay? Not a popular gig. So, so Tamar looks at the third son and Shayla, and obviously Judah doesn't want to give him up. And this probably has to do with, I mean, on one hand, he loves his son. He's seen what's, what's happened to his other two sons. But make no mistake, he has no intention of giving him to Tamar to marry. He sends her back home, and that was no respite. 
because she still remained under Judah's family's authority. And when something happened to her parents, she would be destitute. You get the idea. Judah is, the main point of this is Judah is exceedingly wicked. Not just to Tamar, but understand to his covenantal responsibilities. Remember, by this point in time in the story, his three older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, had completely and thoroughly disqualified themselves as leaders of the brothers, right? Reuben, because he had slept with his um, stepmother, Simeon and Levi, because they had murdered, okay, these men that they were, um, who had hurt their, their sister Dinah, they were in Shechem, and so the natural leadership position was going to fall to Judah, and make no mistake, Judah is failing miserably. And so the stage is set for this decisive encounter. It says that Judah's Canaanite wife dies, and then he goes up to visit a prostitute. Now, something you need to understand, look at verse 20 and 21. This was a cult prostitute, so part of the Canaanite pagan idolatrous religion was that at the time of harvest, the men who were harvesting would visit prostitutes. They were cult prostitutes. It was sort of a superstitious sexuality as, as it was sort of a fertility rite for good luck that you would have a great bumper crop for that season. And it says that Judah was heading up to the place where the crop was being um, harvested. Now, Tamar anticipating this says she disguises herself. Now you have to wonder, how does Tamar know that Judah's going to seek out a prostitute? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious, right? Parents, how do your kids know why you do anything? They watch you. They're always watching. They're always learning. They're never not learning. And Jacob's and, J, and, and Judah's family's been learning, right? So clearly, this is a practice of Judah. This is a habit. This is something she could, they can all. This is a, a heinous sin that they can all mark their calendars by. This is what Judah is going to do. So it says Tamar disguises herself, makes herself prominent, available. They strike a price, a goat. Tamar knows Judah's character, so she shrewdly angles for a piece of. Leverage. She said, listen, give me your seal, your cane, um, and, we, and, and understand this is the equivalent, social equivalent, of giving somebody your driver's license, your social security number, and your credit card, right? This, this, they, would, they would carry these signet rings around their neck, the men were. They would use them to stamp. It was a sign of their authority. It was a sign that they, it was a legal seal that they would use. And she said, I want you to give me all that. In exchange, kind of, I'm going to hold it here in escrow until you send me the payment. So it says that he goes into her and she conceives. And before we leave this point, last, last part of this portion of Judah's troubles, Judah sends his best friend to go collect his items, and he goes there, and voila, there is no cult prostitute. And Obviously, this is a highly embarrassing situation. Judah believes he's been cheated. He doesn't, and he doesn't want anybody to discover this. So he's like, hush it up so nobody will know. Let's keep this on the down low. And just, just an observation here. This is what humans do when they're threatened to have their sin exposed. Humans 
fallen man always wants to cover it up, always wants to hide, always wants to mitigate the consequences, always wants to justify it in some way. But as we're going to see in the life of Judah, God says, Judah, if you want, see, Judah thinks this is, this is life. If this, if this is exposed, my life's over. God says, but Judah, I'm going to have to expose it. Now listen, so that I can cover it. So let's look at this point too, Judah's transformation. So Tamar announces she's pregnant or that she, the people find out she's pregnant. And just notice Judah's hardened heart when he finds out. He says, burn her. Put her to death. This was the standard way to punish sexually immoral, not men, but women. And obviously from our vantage point, from the narrator's vantage point, we can see that this is hypocrisy of the highest order, right? Now let me just say what we mean by hypocrisy and and what we don't mean. Culturally, Christians can often be labeled as hypocrites because they mess up or they sin or they fall short or they are broken. And that is not what hypocrisy is, okay? Hypocrisy is when Christians are exposed in their sin, but all the while secretly sinning, but pretending that they are not. Pretending that they are something that they aren't. Because we've seen this across, even this week across the landscape of Christian news. As Christian leaders have been exposed to have the most heinous of hidden lives, things we can't, it's just hard for us to even comprehend or imagine. That is hypocrisy. Not because it merely happens, but because it's being pretended that it doesn't. And that anyone who is doing likewise should be punished. And we can say this because we ourselves are maintaining the highest standards. That's what the world um, what a distasteful, bitter afterthought that is in the mouth, in the gospel. And of course, the world is going to judge that. That's what's happening here. And so Tamar plays her card. She says, identify these items, please. Now, at this moment, okay, and this is where we see God's sovereign providence bringing something to light that's going to be oh so painful for Judah, but oh so good. We see his sovereignty in motion because here Judah has his Naaman moment. Now, what, what is the Naaman moment? If you're at all familiar with the story in the Old Testament, in Samuel, where David, King David, has committed adultery with Bathsheba. And not only has he committed adultery, but he's had her husband murdered. And not only has he has her, her husband murdered, he invites Bathsheba into his house to be his wife. So Naaman the prophet comes and he confronts, uh, confronts David. And you remember the story probably. He says, David, imagine um, there, was a, there was a landowner, a sheep herder who owned a thousand sheep. And he was rich and plentiful. He had everything he needed. But over here is a lonely little shepherd who has one little sheep. Now imagine that that rich shepherd says, you know what? It's not enough for me to have these thousand. I also want that one. And that he stole that sheep and killed that shepherd. David, what would you think about that man? And what does David say? Kill him. Awful. It's the worst kind of treachery you can imagine. To which Naaman famously says what? David, you 
are that man. You're the man. And that's what's happening here. God's putting his finger on Judah and saying, Judah, you are that man. You're enraged by this out-of-wedlock pregnancy. But come on, Judah, you're the one that pressed her into it. Your, your actions have been the callous ones. You're the one that's intermarried and transgressed my law and abandoned your family and sought a prostitute and sold your brother into slavery. And we can see in just this one moment how Judah's world is just pressing in. It's collapsing around him. Can, can you relate this season? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've all had those moments where we, as our sin is coming to the surface and we're feeling exposed and it's terrifying and we're wondering where do we go, what do we do? And here is the fulcrum, the pivot point, the foundational reality that defines what it means to be a Christian what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's exactly how Judah responds. And this is the beginning of the long road back. Look at verse 26. When confronted with this, there's many, many things that Judah could say. But here is what he did say. Then Judah identified them. Not, not, not like, no, those aren't mine. Never seen those. There's no, th- Judah identifies them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. You know, at this point in time, Judah's mind is probably rushing in a thousand different directions just like ours does. We're in, we're in that position. How do I fix this? What do I do? How do I get out of it? How do I... But Judah has something fundamental to teach us about biblical repentance here, right? Judah may not know all the things he needs to do from here. But Judah knows the next right thing to do. To confess. And to say, yeah, those are mine. Yeah, she's more righteous than me. I forced her into it. And yeah, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to try to pursue her sexually, even though I'm the father of this child. It was the next right thing for him to do. See, the consequences of sin are complex, are they not? But sometimes, as Christians, we can, we can make repentance more complex than it needs to be. Oh, Pastor Paul, you understand, if, if, if this was known, you know, this, would, this, could, this could change my marriage, or this could change my job, or this could change my relationships, or this could change... A fundamental prayer we have to ask as a believer in Christ is, God, as you're bringing this thing up in my life, what is, what's the next right thing? Just, just, we can, you know, just show me what that is, I'll do that. And then after you show me that, I'm going to ask you, again, you know, what, what, what's the thing after that? And then the thing after that. But God, I need your grace for the thing right now. And this was Judah. Now, isn't it interesting, let me just say this, that Moses here doesn't say anything about Tamar. And, and I think there's, there's some reasons for that. And, and please hear what I'm saying and not saying here this morning. But it's an extraordinary thing what Tamar has done. 
She is a Canaanite seeking to be faithful to an Israelite and to propagate the covenant line. She, there is a sense in which there is a, if I can be careful here, a holy promiscuity, that makes sense. Where she is at the very end, she is in a desperate place. She doesn't know what to do. But I think we have warrant of saying that God directly blesses as, as imperfect as they are. And as much as we don't hurt, hold them up to, as a model to our young ladies and say, do as Tamar do, there is a sense in which we do say that. Trust God. Have faith with God. And I think the scriptures acknowledge this, by the way. Look at, listen to the genealogy of Matthew 1. He's tracing out the genealogy. And I just want you to listen to this for a second. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Isn't it interesting? There's three women, only three, who are mentioned by name in the genealogy of King David and thus of Jesus Christ. Three women, Rahab, Ruth, and Tamar, all Gentiles. Two Canaanites and a Moabite. And by the way, when you look at all of their stories, all of them were put into complex sexual situations. Rahab was what? A prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite, led by her mother-in-law to scheme to find a way to place herself before Boaz. And now here we have Tamar. All non-Jews, all compromised societally and sexually, but I think the message is very clear but all acting out of the tiny bit of faith each one of them had. Because after all, it's from the line of David comes the line of Jesus Christ. The lion of the tribe of Judah, which shows us that ultimately it is God's grace that is decisive in the lives of broken people. And we're going to see this in Judah's triumph. Third point, and then we're done. This is important. If you were to plot Judah's timeline next to Joseph's timeline, I want you to to follow the progression here. This incident with Tamar is happening 20 years later after Joseph has been sent to Egypt. By this time, Joseph is second in command. By this time, there is already a famine sweeping across the world. By this time, probably right after this, it's the brothers who are with Judah who are preparing to journey to Egypt to get food. And so it's very clear, I think, and Moses is trying to draw this connection for us, that this incident of Judah's being exposed and being broken and confessing his sin, this is all happening immediately prior to their journey to Egypt. Now, why is that important? 
Because once there, guess what? They're going to experience another exposure, aren't they? They are going to be exposed to their brother, Joseph. And we're going to find out that the brothers are going to need someone to step into that gap. They are going to need someone who is going to be a chief repenter. They need someone who's going to say, I will stand in the gap. And guess who that person is going to be? Judah. He's the chief repenter. We're going to find out. Remember, he's the one that makes the impassioned plea before Joseph saying, take me, please. Don't take Benjamin. Take me. I'll spend the rest of my life in jail, but just just don't take Benjamin. I'll I'll stand as a substitute in his place. He says, "Don't, don't do this, Joseph, because... Our father is old and, and his heart's been broken. We've broken his heart by this deceit we, deceit we perpetrated on him. So, so for his sake, please don't do this thing. Take me. Judah is going to play a decisive role in this whole story. But it can't happen until he's a broken man. It can't happen until he is brought low. It can't happen until he is lifted up by the grace of God to save the people of God. Here's a question for us. Christian, what's being exposed this season for you? What is it that you come in here this morning wearing like a cloak of shame? You know, I think shame is largely misunderstood. There certainly is a, a a, a bad sort of shame, what I would call a psychological kind of shame that views yourself as inherently defective or worse than others. But make no mistake, there is a, there is a righteous shame. There is a spiritual shame where, where we see our life in light of the holiness of God and the character revealed in his word. And it points out our flaws in our marriage, in our parenting, in our relationships, to the way we've oriented our lives, the way we spend our money, our priorities, the fact that our lives have become inward and oriented toward ourselves. I don't ask you if God is exposing something this season, Christian. The question is what? He's exposing something for all of us so that like Judah, we may say what? I'm the man. I am that man. And by your grace, Lord, I can't fix everything going around me right now, but I can can ask you what the next thing is. I can ask you what it means to trust Jesus and to be obedient at this point. And may God give us the grace to do so. Last little section here. It's almost like a little throwaway section, but it's not. We hear about the birth of Tamar's child, and it's not a child, it's actually twins. And here we see this familiar story of the twins wrestling in the room and one wants to come out and one bounces his way out first. And it's kind of a bizarre thing. But whose birth, I want you to think about this, whose birth does this remind us of? Well, Esau and Jacob, of course, right? And and why is Moses wanting to remind us of that birth by this birth? I think it's very simple. He wants to show us that God's grace is not about who is born first. It's not about who is the wealthiest, who has the most influence, the most followers on social media. God's grace is not about family lineage or background or ethnicity or anything else. 
God's grace is unconditional. It's only condition to receiving it is to know that you don't deserve it. And this is the beginning of this redemptive work we see in the life of Judah. And church, what is God doing in your life this season? There's always one direction God is pushing us towards in this process, and that's him. And that's to fly to Jesus, to run to Jesus, to confess our sins to Jesus, to repent to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to find forgiveness in Jesus. Because it is from the actions of this sinful Canaanite girl, as God poured out his grace on her, and then subsequently God poured out his grace on Judah, preparing one day for the coming Messiah who would give grace to the whole world. Do you know that, Jesus? Let's pray.